When someone is in our office, we don't just talk to them and try to have them work through things. We have them hooked up to assessment objective equipment, and we can see when their brain, mind, and body are making changes based on what they're thinking. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an exciting guest today who's going to talk about the brain in ways you probably have never thought about it. Kyle completed his doctoral training in psychophysiology, which we're going to spend a great amount of time talking about. And in addition, he has advanced EEG training with some of the top professionals in the field who do this work and are making incredible advances in brain research. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is going to be a very interesting discussion, and I want to do a little table setting before we get into some of the deeper stuff. For those that are unfamiliar, and many are not familiar with this term, what in the world is psychophysiology? I know. I get that question every day, and that's why I'm so honored to be on your show and be able to share it with your audience and hopefully the world. Psychophysiology is a blending of three disciplines. Psycho, which is the psychology aspect of it. Physiology, which is the study of the nervous system. And there's another piece in there, the neuroscience, the brain aspect. So we study the mind, body, and brain and the interaction of what happens. So in a nutshell, when someone is in our office, we don't just talk to them and try to have them work through things. We have them hooked up to assessment objective equipment And we can see when their brain, mind, and body are making changes based on what they're thinking. So interesting. So when you're doing this work, is this something that that anyone can have access to? Is this something that is just for people who are involved in research study? How how mainstream is this? How, How many ways can people get access to this technology? Because it is something that's pretty unique. I love your questions. <laughs> there, are, there are endless opportunities. Most people that find us are coming from a stance of severe mental health or chronic pain or seizures or things like that. But it should also be available for the average person that is distressed or can't sleep or has trouble focusing or is irritable or has an addiction. I was just on a podcast uh, last week about addictions. And it was so fascinating to be able to pull in the field into an area that most people are thinking it's just 12-step AA. And there are actually brain patterns that can show when people are genetically predisposed to be substance abusers. It's fascinating. Very interesting. And I want to now take a step back and we're going to get more into some of this fun, fun neurophysiology, but I want to ask this question. Is this something you know, when, when you were a little kid, were you always interested in this sort of stuff? What, what was it that put you on the path that you're on today? 
Well, I'll try and be as fast as I can with it because it's kind of a long story. I grew up in a really awesome household with a loving mom and dad and a brother with special needs. And I lived in a pretty nice area and, you know, kind of got caught up in things and kind of chased that for a while and went into some different career paths. But as I look back on it now, I always had that why in me. I always wanted to know why things are the way they were. I didn't understand why people would ask you how you are and really not care. You know, I didn't understand why you would act a certain way when you didn't feel that way. So I was very in, in alignment with empathy and with how other people were feeling. And I kind of read between the lines on a lot of things. And obviously, I found self-help and personal growth at a very early age and ended up um, thinking I wanted to be a lawyer, which is fine. It's not a bad thing. But after going through the whole degree and taking the, the exam, the LSAT, I decided, nope, it's not what I want to do. So I had gotten a master's in psychotherapy and counseling. And I really thought I had found it. Everything made sense right up until the point where I had a 15-year-old boy shoot himself. And that was just too much for me to take. I left the field, went on a a, a one-year hiatus, I guess you could call it. And when I went back in, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Ann Weston, she's been guiding me for a very long time. She's a very seasoned psychologist in the area that I had met at an earlier part of my life where we had a self-help audio program business. And she was nice enough to support it. And she said, hey, you really should get into this. It's a way to still help people, but you don't have to talk to them every day because she knew how I was just bruised with this. So after that client committed suicide and I took the year off, I started training. And she was nice enough to take me under her wing and her practice. And she said, you're going to do everything the right way. You're not going to go to some weekend warrior camp. You're not going to do something halfway. You're going to get board certified. You're going to do everything the right way. And I can't thank her enough for that advice and that, I guess, requirement to practice in her in her office because there's a lot of people in the field of neuroscience that mean well, but sometimes are using things that aren't always validated. And I've kind of become the hall monitor, I think, in some ways, because when I see something that somebody's doing that isn't validated or isn't proven or, you know, they're they're just guessing. I have a really hard time with that. So the why for me was having a client commit suicide, I needed to understand why people weren't getting better just talking to them. And now looking at your mind, brain, and body, which we'll talk about more, I can explain to you and other people where we shut down and where it's not even worth talking. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, that's so powerful and and how fortuitous for you to have a mentor like Dr. Weston who came into your life at that exact time. Well, she was in your life, but she was what you needed at that exact time to you know work through and to transition into ultimately what you're doing today. Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful. And so now you're working with her, you're doing things the right way. You're the validity hall monitor, which I love, uh, making sure that you know the science is actually legit and not woo-woo and doing what it's supposed to be doing. So I want to now transition and have a discussion with you at a, at a broader scale about the mind, body, and brain connection. And I said mind and brain as two separate things, because I know that you're going to talk about the neuro piece of this, but then there's the emotional piece of this. So take us through what the latest research and the data is showing about how all three of these components are connected. Well, you know, without losing people in a bunch of big words and fancy terms to make us all sound like fancy doctors we are, right? The easiest thing to understand is perception. 
And if you perceive something that is a threat, a worry, or a concern, or a fear, your mind is going to obviously trigger your brain. And your brain is going to trigger your body. You're going to go into fight or flight. I promise we'll get back to mind-brain. Just wanted to lay the, the groundwork for all of it. Once you go into that fight or flight, part of your brain actually temporarily disengages, shuts off, loses connectivity. You know, everyone has a different word for it. It doesn't really just turn off completely. But you don't need to do higher level functioning things if you're being chased by a bear. So how we see the mind and brain with that preface is when we have somebody hooked up to an EEG, which measures brainwave activity, or somebody is hooked up to a respiration belt around their waist, checking how many times they breathe in and, in and out. We can see huge changes when somebody is at their baseline from when they're stressed to an after stressor and post baseline. We usually take three or four different measures for people. Sometimes people aren't able to get back to their original baseline because they can't let go of the stressor. They're hanging on to it. So the difference of mind and brain, without being too uh, gruesome, during my doctorate work, we did a brain dissection. And we had Carol that uh, we were with. And it was a real thing. There's a physical thing that I actually can say I saw, and not just in pictures or books or whatever. So the brain is the physical organ that we have. The mind is just our conceptual ability to think, act, and feel. We can't prove we have a mind. Philosophy's been trying to do it for how many years? But what we know is we all think, act, and feel. And there has to be someone that, something I should say, that gives rise to our ability to do that. And that is our brain. So a lot of people will read self help books or go to a coach or a therapist or a doctor, similar to what you and I both have done in our past. And we like to help people. But if you are in that fight or flight response, if you're being chased by that proverbial bear, if you will, you're not listening. The things that happen when we go into fight or flight are very, uh, I don't even know how to say crucial isn't the right word. Impulse control we need, it's out the window. Why do you need to care about impulse? You're just trying to survive. You want to be impulsive. You want to pick up everything. You're not going to be playing chess or doing Microsoft Excel. You're also not very empathetic when you're in that fight or flight mode. You just want to survive. So the problem is between all these things that happen to us, how do we communicate in our daily life with our friends and our family and our coworkers if our impulse controls out the window? We're not empathetic. We're not communicating well. We're just worried about ourselves. That sounds like a lot of people I know because they live in stress. So the field of psychophysiology can help us show individuals what their mind and brain and body are doing. And when they come in and they have a baseline and they understand that that baseline isn't very healthy, they are very motivated to change it. But until you show them that, they don't know that they have a problem. I think something you said in that is very interesting is as you describe the proverbial bear, what a lot of people don't realize is that whether you're being chased by a bear or you're imagining you're being chased by a bear, the, the body is going to respond in a similar way. And so, you know, for so many people, there's something that they're experiencing in their daily life or they did experience in their daily life, which was a stressor that they're holding on to. And that continues to impact their functioning every day in a really bad way. It sure does. You've nailed it right on the head. I like how you can sum up 20 minutes of my stuff in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. I am a little long, long-winded, but the, the message is definitely the same in what we're saying and that we need to get to the root of the problem 
and stop chasing the symptoms. And that's where people are when they go in and seek help. They're chasing their symptoms instead of trying to get to the root cause. And as you and I both know, most doctors aren't looking at the brain. They're looking at just the mind or they're looking at, at your symptoms. And there's so many overlapping patterns where some people could have anxiety and some people could have ADD, but both people are getting medicated for ADD because they can't focus. They're irritable, they're impulsive, but they, you might be acting out of a different pattern. And putting a stimulant on an anxious person is like putting gas on a fire. Absolutely. And it's particularly true of our children that you know, the, the go-to default treatment is to put a kid on stimulants. And it's interesting you know, that the field of psychology is really the only discipline where we treat without diagnosing. You know, you wouldn't go into an oncologist, God forbid, if somebody had cancer and they're saying, yeah, you know, you might have cancer. Let's, let's try a few rounds of chemo and see what happens. Like that is like lunacy to even suggest it, but it's what we do in a lot of times for mental illness, you know, that we just are predisposed in our, from a treatment modality standpoint, say, hey, try these pills. We'll see what it looks like in six weeks and try different pills. So what you're talking about is something very different. You're talking about a concept that's quite radical in that regard and that we're not treating the symptoms. You're going after the neurobiological underpinnings to make change in individuals at a brain level. Yes. And if I can have a shameless plug for the field of psychophysiology and all my brothers and sisters out there doing this, that's exactly what we're trying to bring to traditional medicine is we want to offer the EEG as a way to look at brainwave activity and measure 19 different areas of the brain and let somebody know if their brain is working too fast or not fast enough, or if it's connecting too much or it's not connecting enough between all the neural networks. We also look at the body's nervous system and let people know if they are chronically in fight or flight by this psychophysiological or biofeedback equipment. So once somebody has all of their parameters measured, such as respiration and heart rate and skin conductance, which is how much you sweat, and temperature and muscle tension. These are all different variables that we check on a daily basis. So somebody can then take that information when they leave and say, okay, I know my levels aren't correct. I mean, I've been doing this 11 years now, and I've only seen two people that have been healthy. And we work with people across the country between my office and the one in Chicago that I'm part of. So that means we're getting different lifestyles, different personalities, different cultures, different ages, and there's only been two healthy people. And that's not you or I sitting back as psychologists saying, well, this person we deem depressed or this person we feel has this diagnosis. We're using objective equipment that can't lie. We, we don't color the signal. We look at the signal and there's good and there's bad. And if somebody's breathing two and a half times faster than they should be, it's clearly that they're not healthy and they're not relaxed. So that's why I just love this field so much is that it's not the Kyle Ferroli show that we're trying to bring to the masses. We're trying to say there is a valid scientific field out here that is kind of being forgotten about because it's not in the mainstream yet. And it can greatly add to other modalities. This isn't a you have to do this and nothing else. Let's bring this into your other doctors, bring this into your other therapists. Imagine how beneficial it would be for our clients and patients in the old days when you and I saw people that way to have their nervous system balanced so they're not in fight or flight. There's no bear chasing them and have a really solid therapeutic session. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. 
For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. The next question that I want to ask you is, you know, you talked about the people who are coming into you are typically coming with these issues. Is this something that, you know, even if you don't feel that you're particularly overwhelmed or dealing with trauma, is this something that you know, anybody can participate in and then, you know, be more effective as an employee or an owner or a spouse or a parent, for example? Absolutely. And I think that that, that was kind of um, the the underlying tone of my, my quote of in 11 years, I've only seen two healthy people. And that is really sad. And I, of course, wasn't one of them. I had to work on my own EEG wave, my brain waves and my mind. And, but to be able to think I was doing really, really well 10 or 11 years ago, and then have my, you know, reality check of like, whoa, I have all that going on, but yet I'm doing okay. That's exactly what we're trying to go after is not just the people that are really up, up against the wall, but the execs, the middle management, the lower end workers that are trying to become middle management, whatever it might be, people are under the assumption of if I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. But how about I'm doing okay, I could be doing better. I could be healthier. I could be happier. I could be more productive. And think about most stressful mornings, how many things could happen and they could all be cascading events from if you have an animal and you take he or she out to do their business and they're late and then your kids are late and then you spill something on your only press shirt and then there's traffic and somebody stands you up at work, your lunch meeting doesn't happen, you get a pay decrease, it just keeps going and you got to go home and pick up the kids and do it all over again and then you don't sleep well, so then you're over-caffeinated. I mean, I could keep going and going and going, but they're all minute stressors that keep your nervous system locked up. And if you live in that locked up state, but you can still function, why would you go see a doctor? If you're holding down a job and you have a, a stable marriage and you're trying to raise kids or animals or be part of a charity or whatever you might be doing to make the world a better place, but you're not actually okay inside, you'll just keep going. You'll keep running forward. We had a, a networking thing at, at a, one of my offices and I'd say about a third or a, well, over a third of the people came to me afterwards that I would never have guessed and wanted the information and are bringing people in. I'm like, I wasn't even doing it to, you know, gather business for the office. I just wanted to share with people what we're doing and the book coming out and the speaking and all that. And it was amazing how many people come forward and say, yeah, well, my grandson has this or I'm struggling with this. I think we're all dealing with little things, but if we're kind of getting by, we put it on the back burner. And this is an area where we can try and be more proactive. And I have had some people come in and fly into town and have these assessments done. And it's very hard to be the provider or the clinician saying, okay, I know you have your own Learjet and like seven houses, but you're really not functioning well. Your hypertension's through the roof. You know, you're not able to sleep. You're taking pills for that or this. You're drinking. You have other things happening outside of your marriage you shouldn't have. But yet on paper, you look great. 
So there's so many vices that we have that we kind of cover up, I think, some of our pain and our worries and our fears. And if we're all doing well enough to get by each day, I think we start ignoring the root cause. And I'm glad that you're trying to go after that with your podcast. I appreciate that. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your your book. So tell us the name of the book and what somebody can get out of reading that. Sure. Um, and we touched on on one of the, uh, the aspects of it already. The book is called Check Your Blind Spot, The Seven Ways We Unintentionally Destroy Our Health, Happiness, and Productivity. It's a long title, but it really hit me between the eyes because everybody that I work with has had one of these seven blind spots. And I'll try to quickly go through them without, you know, it turning into an hour. <laughs> the, the first blind spot that a lot of us face is the red bow on top of the Lexus commercial. We all want certain things. We all think we need to have certain things. And it gets us into a, a place of have and have nots and wants and worries and fears. That leads to irrational thinking and negative thoughts and things that happen in our mind, which is blind spot number two. Some of us are aware of blind spot number two, but we don't know how to fix it because blind spot number three is our brain. And our brain is shutting off at certain times. And when you're being chased by the bear, you're not thinking rationally. You're not logical. You're not processing things the right way. You're in survival mode. So we also have to look at blind spot number four, which is our body, our nervous system. Like we spoke about already, the mind triggers the brain, triggers the body. And most of us don't know that we're running around in locked mode and we can't unlock. Well, once you get to that point, we already discussed blind spot number five, and that's traditional medicine. I have the most, I have the highest respect for the medical community, but I really would like them to acknowledge that there are complementary methods such as EEG or psychophysiology in fields that can help them understand their processes better, the medical processes better. And unfortunately, there is a blind spot number six, and that is in our fields. And that if you have someone that's living in fear or worry, they're not going to be ready to talk to us. We've already talked about this one too. So the first six chapters are heavily rooted in science, backed up with proof. The last chapter I had to add in, because of course, we all want to add a little bit of ourselves in. And it is, I think we need to have a bigger picture and we need to have something bigger than us, whatever that might be. You might have a nonprofit, you might be religious, you might be part of a political party, you might have a family, you might take care of a family, whatever it might be. I think that when times get hard, we have to have something bigger than ourselves, whatever that might be, to really pull us through. It could be as dumb as you're fighting the flu for a week, but you know you have a really cool week coming up at work and it pushes you through to kind of ah, get ready for that next week. You don't have anything bigger than you or you don't have a purpose. I don't know how or why you'd want to get through those six blind spots. So in a nutshell, that's that's the book. It's not self-help 101. It's more of a preface to self-help, I believe, a preface to coaching or counseling or therapy. Because if you can understand why you're stuck and why you can't think your way out of it, you you now have the world because you can move forward with all those excellent tools out there, whether it's traditional medicine or counseling or psychotherapy or a coach or how to be a better friend or husband or wife or partner. You now can do those things once you unlock that fear mode. I love that. And obviously, you know, you've been very clear about what your vision is for the future and how the work that you're doing can integrate with traditional modalities that we've talked about a couple of times. 
but share, if you would, some of your top tips for managing some of these stressors, because not everybody who hears this obviously is going to be able to get their brain hooked up to your instrumentation within the next 30 days. So share some things that people can do today, right now, to start managing their stressors and improving their mind-body-brain connection in a better way. Definitely. I would say the first thing they might want to do is look and see if there's somebody in their area that does biofeedback or neurofeedback the right way. We are always open to phone calls and emails at our center if you were to find someone in your area and like to have an honest opinion of that person. Because obviously, I don't want to send somebody blindly to somebody that, that could harm them. But for the most part, there is a huge divide between hearing this and being able to just fix it right away. One thing that people can do besides being mindful and besides eating well and resting is they can learn how to breathe properly. And the spoiler alert, I guess, of all the psychophysiology that I would be sharing with someone on my first session with them is that when we inhale, we activate our nervous system. Think about if you are running through the woods or walking through the woods and you hear something break, you, you gasp in and you're on alert mode. And then you realize, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a twig. And then you, you exhale. So what most people are teaching, and I have to say I you know, was going by the same method until I studied with some very, very high-end people in, in our field, is I would breathe in 50% and I would exhale 50%. Even yoga people are doing this, this long, deep breathe. But if you really want to decrease your nervous system activity, you have to have a longer exhale than an inhale. And the equipment that we have obviously helps with more precision to teach people the right breath per minute for their body, their nervous system. But the average person, like the, the talk I gave in Vegas last year, we walked through 80 or I think 80 or 90 people. We walked through a breathing exercise right there on stage. Put, put your hand on your tummy, put your hand on your upper chest. Tell me which one's moving. We want to get more movement in our diaphragm than in our upper chest. Because if we don't take in enough oxygen, our brain says, what's wrong? Why are we breathing so shallow? And when you exhale for a, a short time and inhale for a short time, you don't know how to lengthen that process. So it's not just inhaling more and then exhaling really fast. It's learning how to control the exhale. And that's something that most people could do. Recommended breathing pattern in most of the research is six breaths per minute, which translates into a 10-second breathing cycle. We recommend people to start at this. The research says plus or minus. So it could be five breaths a minute up to seven breaths a minute. But six breaths a minute or 10-second cycles would mean you would try and inhale for four seconds and exhale for six seconds. So you have a longer exhale than you have inhale. So instead of it being kind of like a sawtooth going up and down, up and down, starting and stopping at the same point with a peak, you're now like a stair step. You're going up 40, but you're going down 60. And you're going up 40 and you're going down 60. So you are activating more parasympathetic than sympathetic. So parasympathetic is the break, sympathetic is the gas. And a lot of us, when we breathe so fast and we don't exhale long enough, we keep ourselves ramped up. When we're doing these breathing exercises of four seconds in, six seconds out, how long do you recommend people do this for? Is this a, you know, a 10 minute thing? Is this something we do more and more every day? How, how do we gauge how long we should be doing that? There is an amazing professor out there. His name's Eric Pepper. 
and I've had the pleasure of seeing him a few times. He gives lectures and will stop in the middle of his lecture if it's on the hour where he does his breathing. So some people feel it's better to do 20 minutes in the morning, every morning for six to eight weeks. That's one of the company out there that builds some of the equipment in our field. That's what they feel is, is the secret sauce. I've found people that do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. Some people that are you know more ramped up might want to do 30 to 40 minutes and they don't feel a change in 20 minutes. The, the biofeedback equipment that we use and we have people purchase, we don't sell any of it, by the way. We're just a service-based company. But the people that we recommend it to, the equipment is like a mirror and it goes on your computer and you're able to see if you're doing it right or wrong. So it doesn't train you to do anything different. It's a feedback mechanism that allows you to change manually your breathing pattern. So the ones with the respiration belts, I highly recommend that'll show you if your chest breathing, which is not the best, or if you're diaphragmically breathing and your belly's moving, the more you diaphragmically breathe, the lower your diaphragm goes, the more oxygen you can take into your lungs, the longer it'll take you to exhale, which turns on that parasympathetic. So it's all kind of like a system. But as far as um, what's right or wrong, I was totally blown away the first time I sat in one of Eric Puffer's lectures because he really does practice what he preaches. And he's like, every hour I breathe six breaths you know, for one minute and everybody stops. Like the whole lecture, this huge room with hundreds of people, we stopped learning. And we went and did breathing. And it was such an eye-opener for me that we're really trying to interrupt the old pattern that we have. We have an automatic non-conscious pattern, our heartbeats and our we breathe. But we can adjust a little bit of that based on like what you mentioned before, perception. Is it internal or external? It can react. We re react the same way. And breathing, we can inhale or exhale manually or we cannot think about it and our body will just take over for the way that it's been doing. Outstanding. Well, Kyle, that is so fascinating. And I love that you shared something that people can do today. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you, just going back to you know, talking about going and finding neurofeedback, you'd said specifically that the best thing to do is to find people who are doing neurofeedback the right way. Outside of literally getting you on the phone, how do people find out what that is? How, is there a resource online? Is there a way that people can find out if there's somebody doing neurofeedback in their community that is using the standard of excellence that you think is appropriate for people? I would say on average, most of the people that are part of BCIA and AAPB, those are two websites, um, AA, Apple, Apple, uh, Baby, Peter, and the BCIA. Those two websites are wonderful resources to find people that are board certified. But sometimes after you're board certified, you may kind of go in another pioneering direction. So you do have to, it's not that you're not guaranteed to find someone that's absolutely perfect, but they have had formal training. They have had the didactic and the blueprint of excellence they've followed in order to become certified. So really it's more of, you know, if something sounds too good to be true, you may want to look at it. You really want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you have a full EEG done and not a mini map or a mini queue. You don't want someone recording two sites at a time all over your brain and then gluing it together because you don't know what's happening all at the same time. If you're recording the front of the brain at this time and 10 minutes later, you're recording the back of the head. So that's the only thing that I would really ask someone to do is to make sure that they're getting the right standard of care and not just jump into the first thing they see. Perfect. I love that. 
And we're going to have links to everything you've mentioned in the show notes for The Daily Helping uh, so that people can find those resources. Uh, Kyle, we are at time. I have absolutely loved our discussion today. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to our discussion today? Well, it always seems to creep into every video I make at my studio or every podcast that I'm part of. And that is Albert Einstein once said that problems cannot be solved with the mindset that created them. And we all have a certain mindset or current frame of mind of how we're going to get through our problem. We need new information. We need new tools. We need to get in front of the problem. And that's what I feel the field of psychophysiology will do, is it will give you a new frame of reference of what's really happening inside of you. And there's always hope when you look in the right places. I absolutely love that. Kyle, where can people find out more about you and get access to your book as well? Uh, The book should be out shortly. We are still redoing the introductory chapter because I love what I do and I haven't quite been able to present it that well yet. So the rest of it is ready for press. We are going through that. My center's website is mindbrainbalance.com. And my personal speaking website is kyleferroli.com. Love it. Absolutely love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Kyle. This was a great discussion. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. And I want to thank each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 